0: Okay, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time, and uh, we should be done about quarter till. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting with us in our worship service this morning. We bless you for your sovereignty in history and for the subflooring of your promises. And now, our Lord, as we see some of the subflooring as the flooring on which we are to walk, uh, as we minister to others, teach us from this very, very helpful volume We pray, above all else, teach us from your own word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. 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 Okay. So, um... Oh, thanks, Karen. Have you all gotten to know Karen Zervos? If not, you need to get to know her, okay? And, And then, Karen, you have to remember everybody's names. I, um... If you had to pick a New Testament book that deals with the false religions of any age, but particularly ours, it would be the the book of Colossians. Because Colossians, Colossians was in Turkey, and there was was something that was called proto-Gnosticism. It was basically you have a certain knowledge, and that's how you understand God more, and how you're accepted with God more. Uh, oh my, I have an embarrassment of riches. Two half cups of coffee. Um, you know, it's kind of like today when, when people will talk about science with this reverential awe. Uh, we just need to trust science. I remember when um, when, when Herb Meather was a, an elder in Franklin Square and Herb was brilliant. He was in the physics department at Stony Brook I said, the only person in Franklin Square more brilliant than Herb Meather was his wife, Anne, who worked with Einstein on the Manhattan Project. So he was quite, a, quite a dynamic duo. And Herb and I were talking about science, and he said, Bill, there really isn't any science. There are theories we have at the time that account for the data that we have, but that's all it is. And boy, what a obviously a lesson. Okay, but but this idea, science, and we're in we're in a very we're in a very rarefied area of knowledge. Anyway, that's the kind of thing that, that was being was being propagated at Colossae. This higher knowledge, and so Paul says, "See to it, Colossians two, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit." which is basically my inflated opinion of myself and my ideas, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, actually the word would be ABCs, we would say, of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now now what that says basically is in all of your dealings with all people all of the time, you always got to come to Christ. And if there's no mention of Christ, it's a dead-end street. And that doesn't mean you use Christ as a mantra, okay? but, but I'm going to sit down for that. But anyway, but that's, that's going to govern everything we deal with in, in this class. okay? Now, let me give you some history that bears on our subject matter, which is biblical counseling. Late in the 1800s began... I'll call it the psychologizing of America. And if that was an idea that basically emanated from people trying to figure out themselves from themselves, it was Sigmund Freud in the early 20th century who, who, who psychologized with steroids. And it's very interesting, I'm not going to get into Freud, but I mean, he really catapulted people into being fascinated with, with psychology. And, and you can see the change. When I was studying uh, pastoral theology in the 20th century, you could see the change even, even in the way uh, writers about pastoral theology began to psychologize preaching even more. But that's not, that's just kind of, that's kind of a little framework. The Christian response to this, which pretty much began in the, in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s is often called integrationism has nothing to do with racial integration integrationism is we take psychology and the insights of psychology and then we we add to it what the scriptures say and in the 1970s the 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 book that was kind of the 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 perfect representation of that was Clyde Naramore's now listen to the title the Encyclopedia of Psychological Problems. Not spiritual problems, not since psychological problems. And it's actually kind of a helpful book, because he, he chronicles things like psychoses and neuroses and, and uh, um, uh, oh, um, depression. And these things oh, it's now more sophisticated. But, but Encyclopedia of Psychological Problems. And with all due respect to Dr. Naramore, He usually ends up with, well, what do you do about these problems? Well, read the Bible and pray about them kind of a thing, okay? 1960, there was a bombshell of a book that came out in America among evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians. And it was written by a Westminster Seminary professor, Jay Adams, and the book was called Competent to Counsel. And he blew things out of the water. He said... The Bible is sufficient to deal with all human problems. Because all human problems come from sin. We'll deal with that today. The only solution for sin is the gospel. Therefore, if you don't put Christ and the gospel front and center, you're not going to help anybody. And the scriptures are sufficient to help us deal with all quote-unquote psychological problems. You don't know the furor that was created by this book, okay? Nineteen sixty, competent to counsel by J. Adams, that gave birth to, we'll simply call it the biblical counseling movement, of which there are many branches. They all have kind of different emphases and so on. But now this has almost become a cottage industry of certifying people. What Dr. Adams called neuthetic counseling from the Greek word for nous, the mind, and being transformed by the renewing of the minds has now become the biblical counseling. Why, why though, is, I mean, now, biblical counseling conferences get thousands of people to attend them, and there's thousands of people who are now certified as biblical counselors. Why? Because secular psychology doesn't work. Period. It can help rearrange the furniture that you've got so the room looks a little bit prettier and you know what to do when you get dust on the furniture. But if your furniture is a wreck, it doesn't know what to do. Now you can learn insights about furniture from counseling, but that doesn't solve the problem. And as a result, biblical counseling of various stripes uh, really has, has uh, well in most cases has really has really prospered. So 1968, Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation begins right across from Westminster Seminary. It's a beautiful big estate that I think was actually donated for this purpose. J. Adams and John Dr. J. Adams, Dr. John Bettler lead it, and then second generation, a, man, a name that may be familiar to you, Dr. Ed Paulison, who was a Harvard graduate. Dr. Paulison's degree was in psychology he was a christian and uh, his book what i think it's called through new eyes or something that was him he he, he sought to look at everything that he had learned about psychology and is a brilliant man from the perspective of the word of god uh, he was the leader of the second generation of the so-called biblical counseling movement along with ed welch whose book blame it on the brain and and his book on depression a, a stubborn darkness have influenced people today. And people say, well, what's the difference? And that's, there's been whole books written about about the differences. I think uh, Dr. Adams, and I loved him, he was a professor, a friend, uh, pretty much cut and dry, okay? I gathered enough data to find out what your problem is. This is what the Bible says about your problem. Go and do it. Put off and put on. It wasn't quite that cut and dried, but it was pretty close. And when he dealt with things like PTSD or mental illness. Early J. Adams, it was like, no, it's a sin problem, it's a sin problem, it's a sin problem. Well, yes, it's a sin problem, but we're not only sinners, we're sinned against. Anyway, CCEF has, I think, become a lot more sensitive to those aspects of of suffering and, and entering into the lives of people, but essentially, commitment to the final authority of the Word of God. Now, early 2000s, CCEF, the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, comes out with a series, what is now a series of books, we have we have um, items up in the up in the um, foyer. These, these are the, It's called the Changing Hearts, Changing Lives series, and they began to address things like depression and worry and anxiety and fear and premarital sex and all kinds of different things from the perspective of of the Word of God. The first part of that curriculum became this. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul David Tripp. And he, he um, I, one of my challenges in this class is I can't, I can't duplicate what, what Dr. Tripp does. He is an amazing writer. He has an ability to so deftly go to your conscience with things. And I can't duplicate, I quote him, but I can't, so, but we'll get to that in a little bit. But he, he, and, and, and this is his, just his preface to the book that became the preface to the whole series, Changing Hearts, Changing Lives. He says, My model is all of my people, speaking of Christians, all of the time. Many of us, writes Dr. Tripp, would be relieved if God had placed our sanctification in the hands of trained and paid professionals now what he's getting at here is people who say, oh, I've got a problem, I need to go to see the, the psychologist or the Christian psychologist. And he's trying to distance himself from that. But he says, but that simply, he says, many of us would be relieved if God had placed over our sanctification in the hands of trained and paid professionals, but that simply is not the biblical model. Now sometimes there is a need for specialists, but that's later. God's plan... Is that through the faithful ministry of every part, the whole body will grow to full maturity in Christ, the leaders of his church have been gifted, positioned, and appointed to train and mobilize the people of God for this every person everyday ministry lifestyle and what he's what he 's referring to here is ephesians four Paul. Paul lays out the unity of the church in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6. And then he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of literally the gift of Christ. According to the way Christ works himself out in each of us is, is a little different. Okay? That's the gift of Christ. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, Christ, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying, Paul writes, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth, which is not hell, but but terra firma. It's a term for the earth itself. He who descended to the earth is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things with what? Himself and his glory and his blessings and his grace. And he gave... Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, or pastor-teachers. And here's our work. To equip the saints for the works of ministry or service, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may be no longer children tossed to and fro, by the waves, and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, literally truthing it in love, were to grow up in every way, and to him who is the head, into Christ, notice the centrality of Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's, a, that's the Holy Spirit's very elaborate way of saying, if, if my body is going to work, every part's got to do its work. Mm-hmm. Now think of Mary Vaith on her left hand having struggles with a couple of fingers mm-hmm. and how it affects her. Mm-hmm. And so we pray that these fingers will be healed so that her whole hand and even her whole body will function better. So that's what Dr. Tripp is getting at. And he's right. Each of us is to have work. But now notice how he he really bores, bores into our consciences with the Word. He says, The paradigm is simple. When God calls you to Himself, He also calls you to be a servant, an instrument in His redeeming hands. Title of the book. All of His children are called into ministry, I'd rather say service, and each of them needs the daily intervention this service provides. If you followed the Lord for a thousand years, you would still need the ministry of the body of Christ as much as you did the day you first believed. This need will remain until our sanctification is complete in glory. What that means, folks, is the simplest thing you say from the Word of God we're dealing now with brothers and sisters in Christ, the brothers and sisters in Christ. That, that, that will be transforming to them. I won't give you the specific, but John Vaith this morning, before we prayed, gave a little vignette from a sermon from Sinclair Ferguson, and, and I needed, he didn't know that, but I needed to hear what that was. Okay, so that's the kind of thing. That's what this book is about. How God uses people who are themselves in need of change as instruments of the same kind of change in others. That's pivotal to this. It comes down to this, as simple as this. I I don't like counseling in that office. It's too small, and I have to sit behind a desk. I hate doing that when I deal with people. So I would do it in the lounge. Why? That conveys... I'm the authority. You are the subject. Bunk. I'm first of all an object of grace, dealing with someone else who needs to be an object of grace. That's pivotal to understand where we're going with this. He said, <clears throat> this book's goal is not just that people's lives would be changed as they give help and receive it. The goal is to help change the change the church's very culture, I'm persuaded that the church today has many more consumers than committed participants. Sure, Joe and Sheila may volunteer for specific activity like VBS or a diaconal project, but this frequently falls woefully short of the the everyone-all-the-time model of the New Testament, our tendency toward ecclesiastical consumerism has seriously weakened the church. You know what ecclesiastical consumerism is? I go to this church, because I love its music, and and, and I'll put up with a 20-minute devotional message, and man, I get a good cup of Starbucks coffee when I'm there, and it's an hour, man, I wouldn't. Now, when the church down the street has the music better and better coffee, I'll go there. That's consumerism. That's not Christianity, folks. That is pure, unabashed, I am going to buy what I want here as if I were going to Walmart or Target or Target. Our tendency toward ecclesiastical consumerism has seriously weakened the church. For most of us, church is merely an event we attend or an organization we belong to. We don't see it as a calling that shapes our entire life. But consider this. This is how Paul Tripp can really go to the conscience. We could never hire enough paid staff to meet the ministry needs of the average local church, even one as small as the haven. The passive body that pays the professionals' culture of the modern evangelical church must be forsaken for the ministry model God has so wisely ordained. And to that end, this book has been written. And to that end, we're going to do this class. Uh, because um, Presbyterians love their clergy. Their clergy are trained men, and they are scholars. And we go to hear the tidbits from our scholar-pastor. Don't you ever begin to think like that as a church. Number one, because I ain't a scholar. Student I am, not a scholar. Number two, that's not the way you think of church. I'm here to worship God and to be strengthened to go out and serve others. Okay, so and, and as instruments in the Redeemer's hands. Okay, so, the plan for the class, and I put a question mark by it in my notes, because I'm still not sure how to do this. We have time frame. I want to be done by June, but I don't want to rush things. I cannot cover everything in a chapter. You'll get handouts later on. Uh, but I But I assure you, every class, you're going to get tidbits about how you can better be servants of others, OK? So <clears throat> let's dive into chapter one, at least the first part, and I want to whet your appetite, okay, for the whole book. And you want to get a copy. Thank you, Joe. We've got one left. We I may need to buy. to buy. We may need to buy more. Who else, too didn't get a copy? And wants a copy? Mrs. Vaith. All right, OK. If you didn't get one, see Mary, she'll make a list. We'll order more. So here's his first chapter. This is is kind of vintage Paul Tripp. The best of news. A reason to get up in the morning. Okay, so here's what he says in page one. He says, this book is about the best news human being could ever receive. It's about something so significant that it makes everything we do worthwhile, even though we are just flawed people in a broken world. This news has nothing to do with fantasies, dreams, or unrealistic expectations. It's rooted in historical facts and present realities. It penetrates the harshest human situation with life-altering hope. It's the only thing really worth living for. In other words, not the flooring, but the subflooring. And he says, it is the good news. Now... He says in his chat, now I'm going to summarize, okay? To get the news, you have to understand the story. And, and this is standard when you're presenting the gospel to people to, to in some way or another include all of these things. We begin with creation, actually begin with God, but God creates the world. And what was that world like before what happened? Well, there wasn't anxiety, there wasn't worry, there wasn't fear, there wasn't depression, there wasn't PTSD, there weren't wars, there wasn't domestic violence, there was no hatred, there was no sinful lust, uh, there, there, there was no coveting. This was a perfect world that God made. But it didn't last. And after what was probably not a long period of time, our First parents fell. And you can't understand a newspaper on one page without thinking of the fall. I used to tell people the obituary column is one of the greatest proofs of the Christian faith. It is appointed unto man once to die. Now, what happens? Think of Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. Number one, there is warfare in the world. There will be enmity between the seed of the woman, which is ultimately Christ, and the seed of the serpent. You see that in Esther. You see it in all of human history where there's a struggle between God's people and others. It may not work out seemingly like that, but that's what it comes from. You've got warfare. Number two, work is not what it was before. There is, for want of a better word, frustration in work. And there's thorns and there's thistles and there's sweat. And in marriage, there's an inherent problem. This is fascinating. After years of biblical counseling, years of counseling, what do you see in a home? A man desires to dominate his wife in one way or the other, physically, emotionally, spiritually, whatever. The husband will rule, will dominate his wife. That's the effect of the curse. What's the woman? Her desire is to dominate the husband. That's the meaning of desire in Genesis 3. There's the desire to dominate. Hello? You know the problems we have in marriages early on? It all comes from those things. I want my way, the man says. The woman says, I want my way. And hopefully he can work it out. But there's another thing. In, in, in society, there's hatred. There's murder that comes in the next chapter. And and there's the there's the idolatry of people who still say, "I want to be as God. I want to do it my way. I'm going to listen to the devil, and I'm not going to listen to God." It blame shifting's a big one. Well, yeah, you blame me because of what I if you had a wife like I did, you hello the woman you gave me, she made me do it, right? Right? So okay, so all of these things seminally have their way in the garden and in the fall. So if you will, all of our psychological problems, PTSD, when your son has been murdered, anxiety that comes because you don't know if what you're planting in the ground is going to grow or not, worry and fear and even hatred, Okay, all of these things that create the atmosphere in which psychology functions come from the fall. And, and here again, Tripp, Paul Tripp beautifully, powerfully, describes this. He says, In the most significant rebellious act ever committed, man and woman stepped outside of God's ordained plan. In a second, it all came crashing down. All of the amazing beauty of that world was deeply and permanently scarred. For an instant, in an instant, fear, guilt, and shame became standard human experiences. People who once lived in perfect harmony, now accused, deceived, and fought for control. Weeds and disease became daily concerns. People began to desire what was evil and do what was wrong. Rather than submit to God's authority, they lived as their own gods. The world that once sang the song of perfection now groaned under the weight of the fall. Sin-altered everything every thought, every desire, every word, every deed. It created a world of double-mindedness and mixed motives, self-worship and self-absorption. People desired to be served, but they hated serving. They craved control and nurtured delusions of self-sufficiency. They forgot their Creator but worshipped His creation." Rather than loving people and using things to express it, people love things and use people to get them. Yeah. Humanity's second generation even committed murder. They began to lie, cheat, hide, and deny. People suffered at the hands of others from momentary thoughtlessness to unspeakable acts of physical and sexual abuse. For the first time, people we- wept from grief within and from suffering without. That's the real world. And no matter how people try to tranquilize it, that's the real world, and people know it inside. They know in their heart of hearts, this is their own heart and the world in which they live. But God had a plan, and it's called good news. And so, in the Old Testament, you have all of these, as we put it, previews of of coming attractions. You have a a prophet that's going to come to teach, and a priest that will that will give himself for sins, and a king will reign over us and there's the dynamics like you heard in the in the sermon of being despised and rejected, and then even being excluded, but then And being cursed, but then blessing come. Okay, so there's all of those previews of coming attractions. And then you come to the New Testament and the Gospels, good news, and you read about this thing called a kingdom. So Mark 1 in verse 15, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. Okay. All all that was spoken of in the Old Testament, if it's a pregnancy, now it's delivering the baby. Okay? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here with you. Repent and believe the good news. Now what's Jesus getting at? The kingdom comes because guess what Jesus is? He's the king. And if he's the king, he brings the kingdom with him. And what is that kingdom? Well, the whole ministry of Christ was designed to dispel to the disciple. It's not earthly. It's not political, and it isn't even primarily external. Remember that the religious leaders wanted an earthly political kingdom. Jesus was going to, or the Messiah was going to squash the Romans. And they were very much concerned with all the external things, okay? How people kept the law. In so many words, Jesus says, no, it's not first earthly, it's not first political, and it's not even first external, it's, he says in Luke, it's within you. What what did he mean? New covenant promise, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a right spirit. I'm going to change the heart of stone. I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. So the kingdom is about what? It's about God not radically changing Rome, but he radically changes people. He doesn't dethrone Caesar he dethrones the devil. He doesn't, he doesn't conquer a secular system. He conquers an unbelieving heart. And all you've got to do is think about this for a bit and you realize that's why when God does this, the world begins to change. It's like Midas in the mythology. Whatever Midas touched turned to gold. That ended up being a curse, actually. But whatever, he t- whatever Christians touch... Whatever they are involved with, it has an influence. But that's getting us far afield. Okay, it begins with a kingdom that, be, that is in human hearts. And what are the evidences of it? The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the gospel. Revival will come when people repent. And it is amazing how sin will make people do anything to avoid repentance. Quick illustration. Friday. And you know the way I am with... Phone- Thank you, folks, for not vexing me with phone calls. Text me or email me, that's fine. But please, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll let me know if you need a call, and I'll call you back. But, but I have to make calls. Well, anyway, I commit myself to what became an hour-and-a-half telephone call with a person from another state who's in an admittedly not-a-good situation, marriage situation. It was obvious within five minutes... I wasn't going to be able to teach this guy anything. He had all the answers, and his wife didn't. He was emotionally stable. His wife wasn't. He knew what it was all about to have children. She didn't, even though she'd had one and had difficulty. difficult... I mean, you could tell it within a few minutes. And finally, thank the Lord, there was a way I could move the guy ahead without myself getting involved in it. But at one point, I said... You got, you got angry with your wife. Stop. Did you ask her to forgive you for that? I apologized. Don't, don't, don't tell me you apologized. Apologized is you believe you had a self-justifying reason for doing what was sinful. Did you ask forgiveness? No. You are going to get nowhere unless you start examining your own heart and start confessing your own sins to your wife and not picking at her. After that, the conversation didn't last very long. But that's the kind of things, folks, that we're dealing with. It begins with repentance. And quite frankly, I don't care how much people raise their hands and praise Jesus. They've sinned. Do they ask forgiveness? You ask forgiveness of your roommate because you cursed him or her? You ask forgiveness of that girl that you violated? Do you? Repent and believe the gospel. And repentance is turning from one thing unto Christ. That's the good news. You Not just repentance, but you come to Christ, believe the gospel, believe, so it's about the good news. So again, trip page 68, and I will be done in three minutes, we'll look at your questions. Um, uh, Tripp puts it so well, he says, The sin that grips our hearts makes everything more difficult, that puts it mildly, It morphs love into selfish lust. It takes the God-ordained safety of house and makes it a place where the deepest human hurts can occur. It corrupts the workplace. It robs government of its good. It even stains the church. And at the end of the day, it results in death. You cannot escape sin because it dwells within you. That's why secular psychology never ultimately works. All the things you learn get twisted by your heart's power. You can't outsmart it or buy your way out of it. You can't move to escape it. That's why the coming of the King is the best of news. Change is possible. You can stand amidst the harshest reality of sins and have hope that will never disappoint you. Romans 5, 1-5. That marriage can change. That teenager can change. That church can change. That friendship can change. That bitterness can be put to death, that compulsion can be broken, that fear can be defeated, that stony heart can be made soft, and sweet words can come from a once acid tongue. Loving service can come from a person who once was totally self-absorbed. People can have power without being corrupt. Homes can be places of safety, love, and healing. Change is possible because the King has come. That's good news. In all of this, God's ultimate goal is His own glory. Christ came to restore people to the purpose they were made for, to live every aspect of their lives in worshipful, obedient submission to Christ. He accomplishes this by breathing life into dead hearts so that we grasp our need for Him. He lives sinlessly, keeping the law on our behalf. He lays down His life as a penalty for sin so that we can be fully forgiven. He adopts us into His family, giving us all the rights and privileges of His children. He daily conforms us to His own image. He enables us, by His grace, to do what is right. His Spirit lives in us, convicting of sin, illuminating truth, and giving us the power to obey he places us in the body of Christ where we can learn and grow. He rules over every event for His glory and our good. He makes us the objects of His eternal redemptive love. The Bible calls this change redemption. We're not only changed, we are restored to God, and this is what makes all other change possible. But remember, it's only, only in Jesus Christ As we wrap up this section, he says we must, listen carefully, we must not offer people a system of redemption. Let me tell you about the five points of Calvinism. A set of insights and principles, like the old Bill Gothard, uh, what what was it, basic life principles. We offer people a Redeemer. In His power we find the hope and help we need to defeat the most powerful enemies. Hope rests in the grace of the Redeemer, the only real means for lasting change. Now this is what separates believers from our culture's psychology. Because our culture has fundamentally turned its back on the Lord, the world can only offer people some kind of system. Now that's why you know, when people say, I want to major in psychology... I say, please, you're not going to major in psychology. You're going to major in the psychological theories or fads that are present when you're in college, and they'll change when you're in college, and you'll pay a fortune for textbooks that are going to be outdated. That's the idea of a system. It reduces hope to a set of observations, a collection of insights, or steps in a process. We, on the other hand meet people as they desperately dig and lovingly ask for their shovels. This is trepid, beautiful. We gently turn them away from the mound and joyfully turn them to the man, Jesus Christ. This is the essence of personal ministry. We cannot treat the Bible as a collection of therapeutic insights. To do so distorts its message and will not lead To lasting change. If a system could give us what we need, Jesus would never have come. But he came because what was wrong with us could not be fixed in any other way. He's the only answer. So we must never offer a message that is less than the good news. We don't offer people a system, we point them to a Savior. He's their hope. And and that's it. Again, don't be led astray by anything else, okay? Now, let me give you an illustration, and then this will catapult us into next week. Um, Now that I'm being able to do more evangelistic work with others, and I'm enjoying it immensely, in fact, I have a meeting Thursday night with this fellow that was nearly killed in a car accident in in April of last year, and, and with his significant other and their child and the mom and the dad who's a Muslim... And so we have another meeting. I have another meeting with them. The last time I was there, I was just very, very downcast. I just didn't think that in my getting to know them, I really did very well at all with presenting the gospel. Well, I neither here nor there. So I've been praying about that, thinking about that. And it came to me that the evangelist Francis Schaefer, who you'll get tired of hearing of, but he was the evangelist in my generation. Francis Schaeffer was asked, if you had one hour with a person for an evangelistic meeting, how would you spend that hour? And he thought a moment, and he said, I would take the first 50, not 15, 50, 5, I would take the first 50 minutes, and I would only deal with sin and what it is and what it does. Then I would take the next 10 minutes, and I would tell them about Jesus. And folks, I think there's a lot of horse sense in that. Because you're not going to value the good news unless you know the bad news. Now, why do I say that at this point? Next week, we're going to cover the second half of the first chapter of Paul Tripp's work. And I guarantee you, it is an exercise in knowing the lengths and depths and breadth and height of what sin does in our lives. And um, so get ready. But it's important because you'll learn those insights that will help you to better present the gospel to others. Okay.